I w was in a creative writing class where... Continue. I was planning on it. <laughs> really? We're getting into that are we, <laughs> yeah. We're doing this yeah. already. Yeah. Carry on. Could I compare you to a beautiful sunset because it's just every fucking day with you? <laughs> Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. This uh, gooseberry fool sitting across from me is Daniel. <laughs> uh, the boys and... Very, uh, flan. <laughs> that famous American dish. Yeah, over there is Abby. You seem so upset by that. I, I thought I was like I was like really gearing up to come up with a really great witticism, but sometimes you can't, can you? Listeners, write in if you can think of a rude American pudding. That means dessert. So, Daniel, my friend, my gooseberry fool, what is our text today? Oh, sorry, I thought I had a pudding then. Um. <laughs> You're, you're going to be stuck. You're going to yeah, be trying to think of a pudding joke. My brain now, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want to pause this and look up different American desserts? See, so many English puddings sound eaten mess, you know. Uh, spotted dick, I've called dick. Yeah, they, so many of them sound like they could be an insult. Come on, let's pause it. No, no. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, we're back. We looked up for an absurdly long time, lists of American desserts. You could have called me a vinegar tart. Yeah, that's pretty good. Blondie, I believe, was Ancient. yours. Yeah, that's, that's not rude, though, is it? Okay, well, now that we're off to a great start, <coughs> what is our text today? Eagle-eared listeners may have noticed that we've abandoned the corporate segment in recent episodes. Do you want to just quickly explain what the corporate segment is? Yes, at the beginning of this season, I revealed that Daniel and I are not actually friends in real life. We actually hate each other. Corporate got involved. They didn't want us sort of destroying the optics of the podcast. So they sent us on a series of different activities and events to try to make us friends in real life. The events got increasingly ridiculous. The reason that we've stopped doing it is because after their various kind of uh, slightly more subtle attempts to nudge us, into friendship. Corporate has staged a total takeover of our personal lives. They survey our movement and they're mediating our engagement with culture and society. So, so far I'm finding it pretty good. I don't know about you. I am. I love it. You know the expression friends with benefits? Well, ever since corporate took over, we're friends with detriments. Yes. Uh... And it's really working. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happier than ever. I was thinking it doesn't it doesn't even really matter what you feel, does it? As long as you do all the right things. And in the meantime, my reality is a tailor-made series of advertisements guiding me to all the useless chat I could ever need. So, it's pretty good, isn't it? Things have, things have turned out quite nicely for us. And it's uh, quite a far cry from today's text, which is George Orwell's 1984, written in the year of our Lord, 1949. <laughs> Technically written in 1948, published in 1949. Thank you. Because it's in... No, he, he transposed the numbers. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I'm joking. I knew that. So it goes without saying we're about to spoil this book for you. The trigger warnings are anti-Semitism, police states, and general fascism, just general dystopia, threats of rape and murder, suicide, rats, and torture. Would you like to do some background? Yes, I would. So, George Orwell. That's not his real name. What? Yeah, his real name was Eric Arthur Blair. He was quite a weird guy, quite a weird life and a weird literary career. He worked as a colonial policeman in Burma. He lived as a quote-unquote tramp in France and England. He was a bit of a poverty tourist, wasn't he? He was a teacher. He worked in a bookshop. He briefly ran a village shop. He fought in the Spanish Civil War for the Republicans, was a journalist and worked for the BBC. So that's quite a varied career, isn't it, I think? Yeah, dude, pick a lane. <laughs> yeah. His literary work's also kind of quite hard to pinpoint, aren't they? They're sort of journalism, autobiography, ethnography, fiction, and they all kind of cover certain aspects of his life. Burmese days, down on it in Paris and London, the road to Wigan Pier, homage to Catalonia, keep the Espedistra flying. 
The main thing that unites them is that they all uh, contain references to things stinking of cabbage. Have you actually read all of them, then? Yeah. this I'd never read 1984 until... But you've read all of these! Yeah, I don't know. Isn't that perverse? You've read Keep the Asp... Aspidistrophine. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Isn't that so perverse? His political views are quite hard to pinpoint as well, aren't they? So he was a kind of dyed-in-the-wall establishment man, born in India, because his parents were sort of colonial types. He went to Eton, so that's like, you know, where... You know, all the kind of prime ministers go and stuff. It's the top, top school. He was quite sort of patriotic sometimes, wasn't he, all well? He kind of talks all about sort of the ideals, stereotypical bourgeois, kind of home counties world of cups of tea and foaming ale and things like that. There's a lot of that in Orwell, isn't there, which sometimes feels a bit sort of tin-eared. Yeah, I mean, it's because we're recording this immediately after the Platinum Jubilee, so it feels like reading this in conjunction with that it feels like I've snorted, like, eight lines of just uncut patriotism. Yeah. But he's also, obviously, like, much more associated with the left. All of his journalism and his novels are all about the abuses of capitalism and imperialism and fascism, most of all fascism. He wrote for Tribune, the main magazine of the British left. He fought for the Spanish Republic in an anarcho-syndicalist regiment that was considered too left-wing for the USSR. I mean, <laughs> he's a kind of liberal, wasn't he? So he attacked the Soviet Union for its the kind of abuses undertaken by Joseph Stalin despite the fact that other British leftists were like, come on, let's turn a blind eye to that in the name of party unity. Yeah, or was like, I don't know about Soviet communism, guys. There were a lot of red flags. (laughs) (laughs) He coined the term Cold War. Did you know that? I did not know that. So, yeah, loads of people really like Orwell, don't they? All over the political spectrum. He's kind of claimed by everybody. So it's hard. I find him quite hard to play, so I feel quite ambivalent. I think there are also a lot of willful misunderstandings of of his work. Oh, right. I feel like on his part as well, though. On his part as well, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes, Daniel, two wrongs make a far right. (laughs) The book begins with a very famous opening line. Quote, It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. We open on a man named Winston Smith who is heading home, and Winston is this pathetic small man who works for the party. The party has three major slogans. War is peace, freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. Let's also just get this out of the way. When Winston comes home, the hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. So there you go. Already right on the first you know, page practically got some smell, cabbage smell. You never see the cabbage. That's one of the funny things about Orwell. <laughs> so it's just out of sight. Do do a close reading on the use of cabbage in Orwell. It's that it permeates everything. It's you know, it's insidious like that. You can never enjoy it. You're not making any kimchi out of it. No, you are not. You got mad at me for uh, say even insinuating he was a himbo because he has coughs and a varicose ulcer. Yeah, I'm not even totally sure. I didn't want to look that yeah, up. I mean, <laughs> yeah. He spends this whole book itching his varicose ulcer on his ankle, and it creeps me out. I mean, things in general are grubby and run down. It's not just Winston. This is partly because electricity is being rationed alongside other sort of amenities and supplies for the upcoming hate week. Police helicopters patrol the skies of London, which is the chief city of Airstrip 1. What? what? That's not... Well, but anyway, and the Thought Police, they reign supreme. This would never happen in America. Again, we're just coming off the Jubilee. You Brits are used to your overlords. But when the Founding Fathers, you know, decided how many rights should we give our people, the only answer was hella. I don't know what to say to that. Just to apologise for George III. So the world is covered with posters saying, Big Brother is watching you. And he's the himbo, isn't he? He's a sort of kind of meaty, mustachioed sort of guy glaring out from these posters, isn't he? Mm, yeah. Tom Selleck in a yeah, bad yeah. mood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Angry Tom Selleck. Yeah. Big Brother, the TV show. People, listeners may have noticed... Understood what the hell you were talking yeah, about last episode. Yeah, last week's episode. clue for this episode, I was doing the, the famous Geordie accent that... Uh, narrates the reality TV show, Big Brother. I, you know what I was doing the other day? I was watching and I was writing my bits of the summary. I was uh, watching the clip when the famous Nasty Nick in series one got outed. Nasty Nick. Outed? Like, out of the closet? No, as oh. a nasty Nick. <laughs> <laughs> the rules of Big Brother were that you, you were not allowed to discuss who you were going to nominate. Nasty Nick got round that by writing down messages to other housemates and saying who he was going to nominate, but he said different things to each housemate to sort of, like, stir the shit. Mm-hmm. And then he got discovered, and it was, it was 
quite an exciting moment <laughs> of televisual history. I, I don't need to tell you. You lead a rich life. Yes, thank you. Everybody, it appears, or at least party members, have uh, sort of televisions in their houses, don't they? And these are those sort of two-way televisions like we have these days, aren't they? They just kind of play propaganda and news constantly and they can't be turned off. But they can also watch you. Yeah, an airstrip one, TV watch you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what do you think Yakov Smirnov is doing in this period? Interesting. Well, he would have been confined to uh, Eurasia, wouldn't he? There's a kind of paranoia, isn't there, that kind of undergirds the, the world that they live in. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct, in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and, except in darkness, every mo uh, movement scrutinised. Winston kept his back turned to the telescreen, it was safer, though, as he well knew, even a back can be revealing. So, you know, you kind of just internalize this sense that you're constantly being watched. We've just started this recap and your eyes are already dead inside. It's, uh, it's a hard read, isn't it? It's quite upsetting. Um, world bu building, you think the world building's good, don't you? There are so many dystopias or fantasy books or whatever, science fiction, that I've read... Well, like, by the way, a, a krongle is a type of... Yeah. It looks a bit like a cow in our world, yeah, you know, things like that. Yeah, yeah I feel like they, they go to such lengths to build the world when actually Orwell shows us that you can do a lot with very little. Yeah. I was thinking, because there are occasionally moments where it's a bit clunky, like there's a bit where he describes something and he's like, the narrator, and he's like, if anyone had still thought in such terms... I don't know, that seems a bit like... I feel like the narrator should operate from within the world of the... Well, rather than breaking the fourth wall yeah, and having a yeah. foot in either camp. Yeah, it's not really a problem, but I remember thinking, I was like, ooh, is that a sign of if, weakness? But again, that's that's just a sign that you could do a lot more with a lot less. So yeah. if you just excised those sentences, it would be even stronger. Yeah. We learned that Winston's particular TV, his telescreen, is in a slightly unusual position. Usually the telescreens are sort of front and center, so they capture everything in a flat. But his uh, is at a little bit of an angle, so he can duck around a corner and have privacy, which is very unusual. And he uses that privacy to start keeping a diary. The punishment of which, if he's ever caught for keeping a diary, would be death or at least 25 years hard labor. So Winston really romanticizes his diary, as you kind of would do if the possession of it would like get you killed. He's like, this paper, I hope it was printed from thick trees that once shaded lovers and you know, cradled nesting baby birds, you know, it's, it, he's very, like, infusing it with all his hopes and dreams. But he's upset to find that he has no words to write anything because the Ministry of Truth, through which all news, entertainment, education, and fine arts are passed, have their own sort of language called newspeak, which abbreviates everything down to the most basic words and gets rid of all sort of outdated, unapproved words. And it creates new concepts, doesn't yes. it? Like thought crime. Yeah, thought crime. Think where a bad thing, you get in trouble. The, and they'll know. Yeah. You know, it's that, that constant paranoia of being observed of, I even thought something bad against Big Brother. Yeah. Oh, the, the police will show up at night. Yeah. There's also a constant rewriting of news. So we hear over the course of the book that there are, there are a few other, like, big regions of the world. Big oh, superpowers, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. There's Oceania, which is, yeah, what, America, Australia, the UK, that sort of thing. Yeah. There's... East Asia and Eurasia. And all three of them are fighting each other or in an alliance at all times. So whenever an alliance switches, the news reports that, oh, these two, they've always been fighting. They were never allies. Or these two were always in an alliance. Yeah, you they've know. always been our good friends, the yeah. East Asians, despite the fact like five minutes ago, they yeah. were like our eternal enemy. It's very high school. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah no, 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 I thought. She was always a backstabber. That we've already got, we've already got, you know, like the W.E.B. Du Bois from last week reading of Jack and Hyde. <laughs> we've already got the, you know, the Heathers reading of um, it's the school as a Foucauldian institution, isn't it? There we go. That would have yeah. been that would have been a great um, casting decision. I did not go with that. Okay, great. Okay. I, I really look forward to what the casting is like. Uh, you might be disappointed. Okay. You might be very disappointed. Great. I look forward to that. The, the news, I, I know this will seem strange today, but the news is just real gaslighting clown shit. What? This works really well because the party keeps all the citizens' memory hazy in a lot of different really fucked up psychological ways. It's also worth mentioning that because there's supposedly this war on, there's always bombs dropping on London, isn't mm -hmm. there? Which, so it's kind of uh, a bit of the blitz. So in short... Winston's just real depressed in the big city, 
Sing, Winston, sing like Fival's sister. One for the kids. Winston thinks about a pretty young woman at work who he hates. Ooh, this is yeah. making me nervous and getting incel vibes. Yeah, as well you might. He hates all pretty young women because they are the most zealous supporters of the party. And he even wonders if this particular woman could be a secret member of the Thought Police. You don't know who they are, that's the <laughs> problem. He also imagines that one of his colleagues, O'Brien, might be a sort of potential kindred spirit. He remembers having the two minutes hate, which is a kind of daily ritual of uh, where everybody just sort of gripes and hates the uh, enemies of the party. Winston believes that he identified similar ambivalence about the whole thing from O'Brien's expression. He's like, I am with you, O'Brien seemed to be saying to him. I know precisely what you're feeling, but don't worry, I am on your side. So even that sort of sense of solidarity takes the form of paranoia. Which <laughs> yeah, and I'm willing to risk my life on this potential friendship on no evidence, just <laughs> well, exactly, vibes. Yeah, just, yeah, exa but it's all about the vibes, isn't it, in this world? He finds himself writing in the journal Down With Big Brother over and over again automatically. He's already committed a thought crime, in fact he's put it to paper, so he knows that one of these days the authorities are going to turn up and disappear him. You know, it's pretty much already all over for Winston and we're only 20 pages in. Yeah, emotionally he does a whole report to the principal's office walk, this whole book. Yes, yeah, there is a bit of that, isn't there, yeah. So while he's writing in his secret journal that he's not supposed to have, down with Big Brother, which he's absolutely not supposed to be thinking, let alone writing, there's a knock at the door. And he's like, great, I, I literally just wrote this and the thought police are already here. So he's just sort of like running in place and whimpering. But it turns out it's just his downstairs neighbor asking for help to fix her sink. Yep. And she's the mother to some terrifyingly zealous children. So read very like Hitler youth. And Winston muses that in a year or two, he wouldn't be surprised if these children reported their mother for every minor infraction. And in fact, children are strongly encouraged to report their parents or anyone else. Just how do you discipline children though in this universe? Because I would have ratted my parents out immediately like... Oh, you, you didn't buy me a pony? Interesting, mother. I think if I was going to do a proper dystopia, you know, if I had to just year zero, top down, mm -hmm. abolish the family, first of all. <laughs> because, yeah, it's a bit naive to think that little kids are going to reliably police the parents. Either, yeah, like you say, either they're going to immediately send them all to the, you know, for mm -hmm. not getting them ponies, to the soup farm or whatever, or they're going to... Never do it, because they're loyal to their parents, so we need to cut that, cut the umbilical cord Ooh. right away. Plato did it, I'm doing it. Yeah, just if I had kids in this universe, I'd be like, hey, having cake again for dinner and your bedtime <laughs> is never. That's like the Munster commune, you know, the Munster commune. in the Like the Munsters? Yeah. That's kind of a commune situation. In uh, the 16th century, some radical Anabaptists took over Munster in Germany, That's and they cool. made children the judges. And so I'm sorry. That was the a most innocent. That no, there. That's a sentence packed with details. You're gonna need to walk me through well, that. Well, I just know it went wrong quite quickly because kids would just be like, "You're a sinner," and you know, it kind of went a bit crazy. Quote: Nearly all children nowadays were horrible. <laughs> It was almost normal for people over 30 to be frightened of their own children, and with good reason, for hardly a week passed in which the Times did not carry a paragraph describing how some eavesdropping little sneak, quote, child hero was the phrase generally used, had overheard some compromising remark and denounced its parents to the thought police. That is terrifying. Glad to know Rupert Murdoch's still playing uh, <laughs> his trade. Later that night, Winston dreams of his parents and his sister, who died in some earlier political purges, and it quickly turns into a sex dream with that pretty woman he hates at the ministry. Quote, Her body was white and smooth, but it aroused no desire in him. Indeed, he barely looked at it. What overwhelmed him in that instant was admiration for the gesture with which she had thrown her clothes aside. With its grace and carelessness, it seemed to annihilate a whole culture, a whole system of thought. Well, someone's been reading their Cosmo. Mm -hmm. The best bedroom positions to match with political positions. <laughs> He's having his own personal, like, erotic perestroika and glasnost. <laughs> well, we'll talk about this a bit later, but... I was very surprised by how erotic this book was. You don't think 1984, this is going to be a sexy good time, but there's a lot in this book that's a sexy good time. Um, sort of. I'm a sucker for zeitgeist collapsing passionate sex, Daniel. What can I say? Well. 
Aren't we all? Yeah, well, I don't know. Um. <laughs> Aren't we most? <laughs> so Winston's whole reality is really foggy because the party has done such a psychological number on the public, and he's not even 100% sure what year it is, but he thinks it's probably 1984. Winston's mind slid away into the labyrinthine world of doublethink. To know and not to know, to be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies, to hold simultaneously two opinions which cancelled out knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them, to use logic against logic, to repudiate morality while laying claim to it, to believe that democracy was impossible and that the party was the guardian of democracy, to forget whatever it was necessary to forget, then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again, and above all, to apply the same process to the process itself. That was the ultimate subtlety, consciously to induce unconsciousness, and then, once again, to become unconscious of the act of hypnosis you had just performed. Even to understand the word doublethink involved the use of doublethink. Ooh, um, getting a little pomo up in here. Also, his name is Flat Smell of Cabbage too. <laughs> so, uh, Winston is an employee of the Ministry of Truth. You remember that? Here we see a bit of Winston's work. So, you know, it's all kind of funny bureaucratic stuff tubes and machines and things mm. it's all very stereotypical yeah i believe i wrote here it's pure djs fodder yeah well i'm more of a 1820s kind of bureaucracy guy you're, you're telling me you're not into this a little bit no nah, no this... if there's not a quill behind somebody's ear in a tailcoat i'm not interested are you sure this isn't a sexy bit for you should, should <laughs> i duck are you about to throw your underpants at this book because i think you are it turns out that Winston himself is the one who does a lot of the rewriting of history. What? So it was not even forgery, it was merely the substitution of one piece of nonsense for another. This is totalitarian wordle? Yes. So the point is, is that Winston is a complicit cog in the machine. He doesn't really have any choice in the matter, but he does really like his job. He, um, you know, it's like, as you say, like wordle, it's like a kind of a pleasant puzzle for him to try and solve that distracts him from the misery of his everyday life. So in the Ministry Canteen, Winston runs into his friend, or as close to a friend as you can get, Syme, who is this kind of gross guy who just really loves to see prisoners hanged and he gloats about helicopters raiding enemy villages. You know, he's the sort of guy who would uh, masturbate to Apocalypse Now. Syme is also a language expert in charge of creating a new and efficient language, so, quote, we're destroying words, scores of them, hundreds of them every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, the great wastage is in the verbs and adjectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that can be got rid of as well. If you have a word like good, what need is there for a word like bad? Ungood will do just as well. Or again, if you want a stronger version of good, what sense is there in having a whole string of vague, useless words like excellent and splendid and all the rest of them? Plus good covers the meaning, or double plus good if you want something stronger still. Don't you see that the whole aim of newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. I mean, he's so thoughtful about the destruction of this, but also weirdly naive mm. in that you don't need words to have feelings or concepts you might not be able to fully express them but you can still feel Whoa, certain things you're going against the old sapir wharf oh yeah well i mean but children you know before they have the language to express things feel a whole range of emotions we can see them be incredibly frustrated and they know what they want even if they can't fully communicate it yeah also the other point to make is that does having excellent and splendid and all the rest of them make you more capable of complex thought yeah, 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 maybe those are stupid distractions. And if we cut it down to the bone, we we'll get to, to the heart of the yeah, issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It has a certain idea of how language works in society, doesn't it? It's quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Syme himself is prone to synonyms, like scores of them, hundreds of them every day, yes, shows that he I, is a hypocrite. I noticed that. Yeah. He's, he's in love with orthodoxy, but in a kind of disturbingly self-aware way. Where There's this other con uh, canteen conversation that Winston overhears. Uh, or watches take place, and it's quite a, this kind of grotesque line here. As he watched the eyeless face with the jaw moving rapidly up and down, Winston had a curious feeling that this was not a real human being, but some kind of dummy. It was not the man's brain that was speaking, it was his larynx. That's quite a disturbing sort of uncanny bit, isn't it? That the, yeah. the party speaks for you through the people rather than 
them speaking for themselves. Or... Well, and it, that idea of almost muscle memory of we have mm. so few. It's, he's like a 1950s, like, pull the string sort of doll that yeah. just has a, a handful of phrases that you say. Yeah, that, oh, God, the, the mechanistic. Yeah. But also... Aside from the new speak, should we have a little mention of the horrible regulation lunch that they have in the canteen? There's a lot of good canteen stuff here. You've got to get in your quota of food mentions. I do, yeah. And I don't have to massage the figures, you know, he's meeting those quotas. Daniel's a hungry boy. Yeah. A metal pannikin of pinkish grey stew, a hunk of bread, a cube of cheese, a mug of milkless victory coffee, that's the brand name that they have, and one saccharin tablet. This doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> Sounds alright, doesn't it? Yeah. Is, this sounds like if Volvo tried to make food. Uh, it's yeah, exactly, yeah. it's grey, it will get you where you need to go. During this conversation with Syme, Winston realises in a kind of slightly detached day that one day the party will come for him. Because Syme is like kind of probably too intelligent despite his zealotry, he'll be disappeared. So anyway, later that night, Winston's writing in his diary about an old exploit he had with a sex worker from back in the day. And then he thinks about his wife. Huh? Yeah, Winston has a wife, or he was married to a woman, named Catherine. They didn't have any children, however, so they separated, which was uh, is the sort of preferred practice uh, from the party's perspective. So Winston has no idea where she is or if she's still alive, but he has nothing to, but disdain for her as a very stupid and zealous woman who only talks in party slogans. I can't imagine him signing those divorce papers. He must be like, I am not looking forward to being on the fascist single scene again. Yeah, because the, the big issue is that the party wants to remove all elements of joy and sex. So, you know you know that book, The Joy of Sex? <laughs> They're not interested. First yeah. on the list yeah. to go. So all marriages have to be approved by a committee and they are purely for the purpose of creating children. And the marriage will be rejected if the people in question seem to be attracted to each other. No, no, no. It's kind of like you have to be a real pervert to like sex. So you have to lie back and think of Airstrip 1, I think, is the, uh, <laughs> um, is the name of the game. So, okay, here's my question. Though. This, is, this is the one little bit where the book fell apart for me because, like, physiologically, if you aren't supposed to like sex, but the party needs you to have children, surely evidence of children is proof that at least the man enjoyed some element of it. I don't quite know how you could get there without even the tiniest hint of enjoyment. My other question is, what happens then if you as a human being are just generally attractive? Surely then most people would be attracted to you. I mean, would I be doomed to be single in this universe? Probably not, Because but I might be. Well, I contain a sort of universal appeal, and you, right. you're an acquired taste. <laughs> so Winston's still thinking about his wife, he's disgusted by how deeply she hated sex, and that wasn't really her fault, it's due to lifelong conditioning, and Winston dreams of just having a real love affair one day, not just visiting sex workers or having this sort of joyless routine intercourse with his wife 11 years ago. Um, I have a prefab here. I wrote... Winston doesn't want a porn hub. He wants a porn hug. <laughs> porn hug. <laughs> so quite sweet about that. I don't know, don't know why. Winston, he's walking home from work one day. A steamer, an enemy rocket, lands nearby and blows up a street full of houses. Winston sees a severed hands. He kicks it into the gutter and carries on with his stroll. I mean, who among us? Yeah, exactly. He has a little kind of thought while he's walking home. He imagines that the proles are his one hope. There's this whole other group of people that aren't in this, under the same scrutiny that Winston is. As the party slogan put it, proles and animals are free. Winston decides to go to a pub in a lower class prole area of town. Uh, and then he has a little, you know, ooh, maybe the proles might have people in their number who can still remember what it was like in the before times. Because Aww, I like him doing his little rose on the Titanic, going down to steerage. Exactly. Varicus also stops him doing that special dance move thing, <laughs> tiptoe thing. He'll ask one of these proles about the past for his diary. Oh, Winston Smith from the Treason Gazette here. Yeah. Quick question about the before times. What it's like the bleeding, uh, this was a real thing in the 1930s and 40s and onwards. The uh, mass observation archive in Britain that you, you just have these like sociologists all sitting in pubs just eavesdropping on conversations and writing it down. And that, that sounds like my ideal evening. Yeah, well still going strong I think although I, I don't think they 
the ethics committee wouldn't let that through. Winston, he's in the pub, he gets into a discussion with an old codger about what life was like under capitalism and how the working classes were ground under the heel of the wealthy capitalists. Can we call him Roger? Roger the codger. Like Roger the Dodger. What's that? In the Beano. Okay, keep um, going. So the old, the old man talks, he's like, oh yeah, people did wear top hats, I suppose, but, you know, he doesn't seem to like, he kind of confirms the party's story about what capitalism was like, but he also kind of undermines it by seeming unfazed by how awful it, the party claims it used to be. Um, but you seem to think that the message here was that the working classes are always in the shit. Well, yeah, this seemed like a very same shit different day you know where we were kept down by the capitalists we're kept down by whatever this system is as long as there is a class system it doesn't really matter who's in charge it's gonna be shit i think i felt like it was all well washing his hands of the quote-unquote proles and saying like they, they have no historical consciousness they're never going to be able to rise up i thought it was like a kind of anti-working class thing rather than a sympathetic thing the guy is just so oblivious and ill-informed that it's not even worth talking to him because you can't really learn anything from him. Oh man, I didn't get that at all. Oh, I, I, thought... I got a really nasty message from that. So Winston decides to go back to that seedy antique shop where he first bought his diary. This is a sort of like dirty little secret, I go antiquing, which I find <laughs> hilarious. Uh, and he splurges on an antique paperweight. My dude like bit, has yeah. been getting his antiques roadshow hours in. And he thinks about all the other things he can buy from this man, and he starts to get wild and reckless with happiness. You know, just buying a paperweight, it's going to keep me up all night from that <laughs> adrenaline rush. <laughs> so then as he's walking home, he sees that pretty girl from work who he hates approaching him on the sidewalk. Oh, sorry, the pavement. Thank you. And he thinks... This bitch must be the thought police. Like, she must be following me, you know, when I'm not supposed to be in this antique store. That's it. I'm done for. And then, Daniel, then he contemplates killing her with the paperweight like that Richard Gere sex movie that time. Yeah, I don't know what you're on about there. He manages to make it home, and he's like, the thought police, they're going to disappear me in the night. Like, she's been following me. That's it. He doesn't get thought policed. I, I'm sorry, is this T-H-O-T? policed yes exactly oh yeah. we should have been making the joke the whole time no, no, that, it, damn it's it. not that good a joke so don't worry <laughs> <laughs> i've only been making it for two seasons yeah. he resumes his normal life he runs into the the thought doesn't he he <laughs> runs into the girl again at work she trips over in front of him he, oh the old fake trip the old tripperoo he runs over to make sure she's okay and when he helps her up she passes him a note you know what it says? What does it say? I love you. Whoa, that's very sixth grade. Very, do you like me, circle yes or no, but make it a felony. Yeah, quite forward. Yeah. Winston is stunned. Uh, yeah, him and me both. I mean, who wouldn't love this schlubby young Apollo? It's a little intense. I love you. Yeah. I guess I like you. Uh, how about it? That's what you write. <laughs> Come on. How about it? Hop on, lad. <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. So all of a sudden... Winston has purpose in his life, the love affair he's always wanted. He no longer wants to take stupid risks in antiquing, oh no. Now he's going to channel all of his Amelia Bedelia energy into getting his freak on. So he assumes now, after hating this girl, that her personality must be great because most women he knows are conditioned to hate love and sex, so this girl is clearly rebellious. But, but he's some dweeb. I'd be like, don't want to be in any club that would have me as a member. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she seems really out of his league, so I yeah. like I would be more suspicious if I were him. Yeah, yeah. So he he wonders how can I arrange a secret meeting with her so I can finally get some action, and then we get this great high school comedy farce. Again, I know, high school yeah. of of him trying to get her alone at a lunch table so they can talk, but they're constantly getting interrupted and they have to sort of sit at the same table but not look like they want to speak to each other. Finally, they get the table alone for about 30 seconds, and in a very tense moment before they're interrupted, they manage to arrange to meet in a big crowd later that night. It's very, like, are you a cop? You gotta tell me if you are, sort of deal. So that night, they meet really carefully, and in yet another very tense moment, they manage to exchange some super complicated details about where they can meet more privately that weekend. I mean, asking people on dates in normal circumstances is, like, the hardest thing to do, so I'm, I'm applauding him. Yes, Winston, get somebody. You're being foolhardy. She's out of your league. She probably is the thought police. But, you know, follow your bliss, my dude. 
They meet at Trafalgar Square, don't they? Ooh, Trafalgar Square is for lovers. I've always said that. Also, there's a big crowd because some quote-unquote foreign-looking prisoners of war are being paraded through the city. So that's a kind of a rare example of... Sometimes I wonder when I'm reading this, like, is it all just entirely confined to Britain and all the war is made up? But then we have this bit with these kind of people who look sort of well, East Asian and stuff. So you're like, ooh, maybe they are real. That's that's a really interesting point, is that we the narrator keeps us as well closer, so he really controls our view as mm. well. It's all about controlling the gaze and who's looking at yeah. whom and, and things like that. So it's the weekend. Everyone's working for it. Still have weekends in the dictatorship. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Ain't all bad. So... Winston goes on a long journey to the country to meet up with this woman. He implicitly trusts her straight away, and he's like, she must be good at this sort of thing, so I'll just kind of follow the rules and do what she says. Yeah, my dude, you know nothing about this woman except she makes your pants go, huh? Do not use your dick as a divining rod. (laughs) (laughs) She takes him out into the woods. So, as a woman, if I meet a rando in the woods for sex, I am going to assume I'm getting murdered at the end of it, but... The joke I have here is, he can't see the trees for the wood. Because, like an erection? Yes. Okay. They're, they're alone together in this, this glade, aren't they? There's no microphones around, that's what they're worried about. Or at least they assume there are no microphones around. Uh, Winston's... <laughs> every, every tree is bugged. Well, they do Winston, say that, don't they? I know, but that's how Every depressing. bug is bugged. <laughs> Winston's opening gambit is, I'm 39 years old, I've got a wife that I can't get rid of, I've got varicose veins... I've got five false teeth. So, His pillow top could do with some work. Oh, well, yeah, he's, he's saving the itchy ulcer for later. <laughs> yeah, second date. Leave, leave yeah. some mystery. <laughs> she doesn't care. They try to have sex, uh, but he can't rise to the occasion. Um, His penis is like, I don't really know where to go from here. I honestly did not expect it to get this far. Yeah, we have a little bit of it talking, don't we? <laughs> Um, <laughs> like like in that episode of Pam and Tommy, it's exactly that in this book. That's also about being... Observed. Yes. Ooh, interesting yeah. essay topic there. Yeah. Only at this point does he find out that the woman's name is Julia. Man, I know they've only really known each other for like 10 minutes, but it feels like they've known each other for 20 minutes. <laughs> so Julia asks what he thought of her before she passed him that note. And he says, quote, I hated the sight of you. I I wanted to rape you and then murder you afterwards. Two weeks ago, I thought seriously of smashing your head in with a cobblestone. Liar! It was a paperweight. <laughs> she laughs delightedly, which would not be my reaction. Um, but she's happy that he thought that she was part of the thought police because it means that her rebellious you know sort of hidden self is actually hidden really well now i would like to point out that this was one of the bits that was quoted a lot on goodreads um people really really objected to this bit and they're like oh this book is pure misogyny i think this is one of the like double think elements that's really key to unpacking the book Mm. because you can see a man who has been so conditioned to hate sex, to have violence be part of his everyday life, to associate violence with this weird sort of self-loathing. Mm. And to th- also with like lib- libidinal energy to transmute that. Yes. Sublimate that into violence. So he's clearly, yeah, getting wires crossed. And on top of that, being attracted to somebody, but then thinking they're part of the thought police, they're going to do me in, and this is my... So, like, you can see a lot of different yeah, no, it's, perspectives yeah. funneling into this. Like, for him to say, obviously, I wanted to rape you and then murder you afterwards, not a good thing. But it's almost like this weird sort of confessional. Yeah. Him saying this to her is almost him purging yeah. all of this. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's complex, isn't it, right? We're, yes. We're allowed to address these kind of complex themes, aren't we, without the book necessarily accommodating them in a or like approving of them right this this seems to me at least a really conscious understanding of what happens with sexual repression the fetishization of violence yeah yeah, yeah, the the hypocrisy this is these are the ways in which that comes out so the book explores pathological sexuality sexuality in society but it's also could be a kind of token of it yes julia feeds him an old-fashioned piece of chocolate and they listen to a bird sing it doesn't sound like much but the way this section is written it sounds like an amish kid just going ape on rumspringa so julia admits that she's actually had sex hundreds of times she's not one of these prudish zealous types that will only have sex to have children weirdly this gets winston super in the mood he's like 
public cervix announcement. <laughs> I love you. Um, I'm so sorry. That was yeah. such a shit joke. Yeah, it's one every episode, isn't there? He says, quote, Listen, the more men you've had, the more I love you. Do you understand that? I hate purity. I hate goodness. That idea that he associates... The values of the party with goodness. Yeah, he still can't quite divorce those two concepts in his head, even though he knows deep down that what she's doing is good and healthy and normal. Can't we just accept that they're both ungood? Having sex or not having sex, they're both ungood. So what, what is the good option, Daniel? Just not having genitals at all? In an ideal world, yes. That's what we're working our way toward. <laughs> Go a lot to therapy. <laughs> and then they boink in the woods like teenagers. Quote, their embrace had been a battle, the climax of victory. It was a blow struck against the party. It was a political act. Girl, I'm getting all hot and bothered over here. That's that's kind of sexy the stuff. The personal's political. I just thought this was an interesting bit about when Winston interrogates Julia after they talk about getting together. What could you see to attract you to a, in a man like me? I'm good at spotting people who don't belong, she says. As soon as I saw you, I knew you were against them. So again, like Winston had a kind of fantasy about O'Brien being one of his sort of a secret ally. Julia also has a kind of counter tyranny, you know, she, mm -hmm. she kind of spots outsiders. She, she's also engaging in a surveillance, even if the surveillance is to find fellow outsiders rather than incriminate them. So she's doing the same thing Big Brother does, but I think there's, there's a big flaw in here that makes this, this scene so sad and hopeful to me, mm. where she's like, oh, I can spot, I'm doing the same thing, I'm reclaiming some of this power, which I suppose she is, but it's, she's relying on her eyes, she trusts her eyes. Big Brother knows that even their eyes, for all of their surveillance, they aren't trustworthy. That's why they're changing the language as well and changing thought. Yeah, no, yeah, so you're big, right. So Big Big Brother is like aware that this is a good tool, but you need to hit them on all fronts. And she doesn't quite, you know, she, she's a little bit more hopeful that her vision is correct. So Julia and Winston, they meet up a few more times. They have a pretty steamy secret love affair. Wow, I really believe you when you say it. I was going to say spicy. <laughs> Ooh, mm, no like thank you. A bit painful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they have to meet in dangerous places, and they once almost get blown up by an enemy rocket landing nearby. Which... Find the phallus much? That's what I wrote. I know. You're ripping me off, man. Man. But it's cute when I do it. Okay. To make it safer... You, you can say it. Say, no, no, say your sentence again. No, do it again. No, no, I don't. Do it again, it's it's fine. Do it again. It's better, no, it's better. The dialogue's better. Okay. Uh, to make it safer... Uh, Winston secretly rents a little bedroom above the antique dealer's shop. You know, the one that he's been going to before. Oh, um, he rented an Airbnb. Very good. Uh, since the guy who works there is already dealing with contraband, so it's already a kind of like, you know, off-limits place. Winston kind of confides in Julia about his wife and recounts an instance when they were first married and they got lost on a group hike. During this hike, he contemplated shoving his wife off a cliff. Is that sort of the inverse, then, of the woodland sex scene? And, it's, the same, and... it's the same conditions as the woodland hike, insofar as it's just the couple by themselves, finally alone, and he's like, I could... Uh, so, yeah, violent there... register, but yeah. yeah. But there's a kind of parallelism there, you're right. Another time, during their little kind of love nest period, Julia gets a hold of some makeup, and she gets the old slap on, which drives Winston wild. <laughs> I'm sorry, the old slap on. Yeah, slap. Get a bit slap on. I don't know, people call it slap, don't they? Do they? I've never heard that. That's Is it. that what slapper means? Oh, maybe. I never thought of that. Yeah. Another time Julia has to cancel one of their little liaisons because she gets her woman's period. <laughs> Winston is upset about this. He feels cheated by the universe. He's a homosexual. Fear of missing out. Yeah, no, I know. Okay, I get it. sorry, yeah. it just wasn't funny. Okay, yeah. I'm having the time of my life over here. I don't know what you're doing over there. They fantasize about getting married, or maybe having a suicide pact, or joining the secret organization whispered about called the Brotherhood. Yeah, by the way, there's this big kind of secret underground movement supposedly called the Brotherhood. It's never the goddamn sisterhood, though, is it? It's not big sister is watching you. One day, Winston's not-really-friend, Syme, you remember him? The dictionary dude? Love that guy. He vanishes, just as Winston predicted. He was probably too smart for his own good. They disappeared him. Winston also runs into O'Brien again. That, that guy who he kind of was like, oh, you might be a bit rebellious, might have a little rebellious streak. 
And Winston has been kind of suspicious of O'Brien for a while. There's just, there's something weird about this guy. So he's never sure if O'Brien might secretly hate the party too. And O'Brien, on the pretext of discussing the further reduction of the dictionary, gives Winston his home address. Can we give this a little queer reading? Just lighten this up a little bit. Um... Why not? Why the hell not? So getting slightly reckless in the knowledge that one day they'll be separated at best or disappeared at worst, Winston brings Julia with him to O'Brien's house. He's like, f*** it, our relationship is out in the open. And Winston just jumps right in. to such a stupid bit. Winston says, we we think you're part of some secret revolutionary group and we want in. And O'Brien's like, yep. The Brotherhood is real. Uh, Our leader is Emmanuel Goldstein, the guy who you thought was just this, like, straw man set up by the party. He's always in, like, the propaganda. Yeah. He's an object of hate. But, you know, know, he's very real and very much alive. O'Brien makes them take a vow and promise they would do anything. Lie, cheat, murder, sabotage, even throw sulfuric acid into a kid's face to undermine the party. Oh, finally a feel-good moment, Daniel. (laughs) Hell. How would that help? <laughs> and they agree, and O'Brien tells them, you know, they'll be fighting completely in the dark with no knowledge of anyone involved. They'll need to obey these orders blindly because they're not going to see the big picture. And he, he, O'Brien, might even disappear and get a new face and identity because we're apparently in that faceless men Game of Thrones universe now. You'll have to get used to living without results and without hope. You'll work for a while, you'll be caught, you'll confess, and then you will die. Those are the only results that you'll ever hear. There is no possibility that any perceptible change will happen within our lifetime. So that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> that's the sort of uh, political movement that you can get into. Uh, yeah, and Julia's like, you know what? I'll Sure, this sounds fine. I will face death like I face everything else. I will stare Big Brother in the eyes and make the off motion. Yes. O'Brien arranges through a bit of the old briefcase swap he manages manages to get winston a copy of emmanuel goldstein's subversive book who's even printing this well indeed you might ask we get to read some of the book here some <laughs> yeah yeah uh, a lot is, of it yeah we're gonna breeze through this in a couple of sentences this is like i mean what this is like 30 40 pages yeah George Orwell, he tried so hard, didn't he? He tried so hard to world-build in this kind of subtle way, and then two-thirds of the book, boom. Like giant the, tracts of pages about how things are. Yeah. You know. But then again, the book is a product of that world. Maybe there's something more complex going on. Who knows? I'm not going to lie. I skipped through most oh, of I this. quite enjoyed it, of I have to say. Yeah, I, have to, but I, I recognized it as aesthetically flawed, but I thought it was quite fun to read. The book explains how the world got ordered into these big superpowers. These superpowers quickly realized that they could use this new kind of low-intensity war to control production and public opinion. The idea is, is if you're always at war, that keeps people nationalistic and industrious. And... You know, all social efforts, science, you know, aesthetic progress and everything, they're all directed to the ends of the state and its unwinnable war. There's another bit about class warfare uh, and how to keep people in their proper places through ambition. So it has this idea, doesn't it, that there's always three classes, the the lower classes, the middle classes and the ruling class. The lower classes are always just going to be losers and they don't need to be controlled. Meanwhile, it's the malcontented middle classes, isn't it? It's your Robespierre's and all that lot. They're the ones you need to keep your eye out for. The party is composed of the upper classes and the middle classes. The middle classes are people like Winston and Julia, who just live in a complete police state. And it's because the rulers of the party are worried that that sort of type might overthrow society. Got too much gold in their blood. Exactly. Well, yes. That's a little Aristotle joke. Or Plato, even. Yeah. I was trying to pull a Daniel and I... Yeah, pulls that up. The book kind of really opens Winston's eyes, doesn't it? Things are all going pretty well. Winston's enjoying the book. He reads it a bit to Julia, doesn't he? She falls asleep. So that's how <laughs> so we all felt. One day, Julia and Winston, they're in their little love shack above the antique dealer's shop. Let's have the, let's have the line, because this is a good bit. The, the, the pair are kind of sentimentally watching this prole woman singing, and they kind of constantly go on about how robust she is, don't they? And so here it is. The birds sang, the proles sang, and the party did not sing. All around the world stood the same unconquerable figure, made monstrous by work and childbearing, toiling from birth to death, 
and still singing. Out of those mighty loins, a race of conscious beings must one day come. You were the dead, theirs was the future, but you could share in that future if you kept alive the mind as they kept alive the body, and passed on the secret doctrine that two plus two makes four. We are the dead, he said. We are the dead, echoed Julia dutifully. You are the dead, said an iron voice behind them. Who the f*** narked? So, there's a telescreen in that room, in their love nest, the whole time, they didn't even know about it, they've been spied on, yeah. Everything suddenly goes crazy, doesn't it? Cops come in, Mm -hmm. Uh, turns out the guy running the antique shop was in on it the whole time. Yeah, thought police, under, in deep cover, yeah. Why wouldn't you not have an antique shop? And then this would never have happened. I suppose it's that whole sort of God as, you know, big brother, why give free will, if you know you're just gonna watch people do the thing you don't want them to and then the joy of punishing them i guess yeah i suppose also this is a bit that i thought was spooky one of the cops protruded the tip of a white tongue and licked the place where his lips should have been what's that all about are the cops like monsters or something i didn't know if it was sort of like an anemic robot there's nothing sensual there's nothing fleshy there's nothing you know yeah just that sort of like the uh, white tongue lipless I don't think he's a monster, I think. I thought I was like, shit, there are monsters as well. That's what I was like. Oh, no, it just sounds bog standard British. Yeah, 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 yeah. maybe you're right. Pasty and bloodless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. My question is, do you think they got to put on their government-issued jumpsuits before they were cuffed, or were they taken into custody buck-ass naked? Naked, I think. doesn't say that. They're kind of all getting battered naked. Winston finds himself locked away in the impenetrable Ministry of Love, and it's a place from which no one ever escapes. So while in prison, he runs into a man named Ampleforth, a work colleague imprisoned for leaving the word God in a Kipling poem that he was rewriting. And his excuse is that there are too few rhymes he could replace God with, and the poem wouldn't make any sense. God, Ampleforth is a himbo. I couldn't figure out what rhymes with God. Nod the sod? There's loads of them, Daniel. What? Come on. Bod? Somebody's got a rockin' bod. (laughs) Yeah, there it is. Winston, then, in this horrific prison, runs into his colleague and neighbor Parsons, who's this dumb zealot who's been reported to the Thought Police by one of his horrible children that we saw earlier, who Winston predicted was going to, you know, tell on their parents. And when asked by Winston if he's guilty, (laughs) Parsons is like... Quote, of course I'm guilty. You don't think the party would arrest an innocent man, do you? Loyal to the end. That is... I just... I have no words. Which is good for a podcast. It, it was my daughter. I don't bear any, her any grudge for it. In fact, I'm proud of her. It shows I brought her up in the right spirit. <laughs> he deserves everything yeah. he gets. So Winston watches as prisoners are taken into the dreaded room 101. But no one tells him what's in there. As he waits and starves, he hopes that O'Brien, magical O'Brien, he of the Brotherhood, will somehow smuggle him in a razor blade so he can kill himself. Then to his horror, Winston sees O'Brien in prison. Oh no, they nabbed O'Brien as well. Only he finds out that O'Brien is actually in the Thought Police and the whole thing was a setup. Who would have thunk it? What? Yeah, O'Brien rolls in and he's like, hey dummy. Winston, he's in the ministry for a long time. Can't even really tell though, can he? He's been beaten, he's been tortured, he's been starved. All the usual kind of Amnesty International (laughs) no-nos. So I'm glad that amuses you. Um, (laughs) O'Brien hooks him up to a pain machine. He reconditions Winston to believe whatever the party says is true. Winston's like, if you're going to just kill me or keep me here forever, then why do you bother do all this conditioning? And... It turns out that when people are disappeared, a lot of them aren't killed. Because they're so like completely broken and brainwashed to love the party, they're just kind of released out into the world on the condition that they could one day get done in. But like almost as new people, they're yeah. like given, you know, we've, we've completely reset. You've, you've gone back to the factory settings, yes, basically. Yeah. New identity, off you f***. Sounds pretty good. Winston, during this torture period, also it turns into a bit of a kind of philosophical dialogue, doesn't it? He gets to ask O'Brien some questions. First, he asks about Julia. She apparently turned on him immediately. Then he asks about Big Brother, if he exists. O'Brien is vague about this, but it's kind of implied that Big Brother is more just a figurehead than a real person. He's like, yeah, I don't know, Dillweed, be scared, or why are we having a symposium? Then Winston's like, does the Brotherhood exist? And O'Brien's like, you'll never know, Sonny. 
And then uh, O'Brien's like, however, I did write some of Goldstein's book myself, so... Another reason to hate O'Brien. Yes. <laughs> O'Brien is one of those awful postmoderns that you get these days, isn't he? He's an awful relativist. You know about them? <laughs> Reality is not external. Reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. Not in the individual mind, which can make mistakes, and in any case soon perishes. Only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. Whatever the party holds to be truth is truth. Also, I like this bit because Winston had never loved O'Brien so deeply at this moment. So, it's just, it's, it's nice to have someone to talk to. I think I'm right. he's just relieved, isn't he? I think it's, it's nice to just get this over with. The, the thing you feared your whole life. Winston's kind of like, why are you even bothering to do this? Why did you set me up only to torture me? We don't really care about ideology. It's not about how much you love Big Brother or not. The party is just a vehicle for exercising power. We do it because we can. Yeah, exactly. And we kind of get off on it. Hooray. So finally, Winston is taken to the horrible room 101, the final stage in his conversion, where O'Brien says they will teach him to love Big Brother. In this room, basically what it is is they find out what everyone's biggest weakness is, their greatest fear, the worst thing they could imagine, and they torture them specifically with that. Just so it happens that throughout the book, Winston's occasionally been like, ooh, a rat. Oh, I hate a rat. Ooh, yeah, they're frightening, aren't they? What's your biggest fear? Well, I'm not going to say, because... Wait, what would you have? Being forced to have sex with Ben Barnes on a big pile of money. Nightmare. So they bring in a cage full of rats and they hold it to his head in a very Wicker Man remake why did it have to be bees sort of way. This rat isn't just any rat, it's a scaly grandfather of the sewers. Oh god, scaly grandfather of the sewers though, there is my nightmare kindling. <laughs> and this is the final straw for Winston who finally betrays Julia in his heart, screaming that he wished they would do the rat torture to her instead and his transformation is complete. How do you suppose they're torturing Julia? Um... I mean, it's 1984, maybe they're straightening our perm. We cut to a pub. Winston's there. He's having some of the horrible gin that they have in this book all the way through. And he's watching the telescreen about the latest military victory. Well, that's nice. I guess it all turned out. Yeah, I think probably did. He He's kind of coarsened. He looks older. He's lost some hair. He's also been given quite a nice cushy job. Sounds pretty good. Interesting. Curveball? He has a little think about Julia and he has actually even run into her before that's fine because the party knows that Winston is fully in their clutches as is Julia and when they run into each other they confess that they both betrayed each other and that they're like well ultimately in a society like this you're completely alone and you know therefore only think of yourself we don't love each other anymore so well they'd had ending. a terrible run yeah uh, <laughs> yeah he thinks about all of this as he listens to the news bulletin in the pub and he realizes how wonderful it is that Oceana has won this latest military victory. The last words of the book are, but it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. So, happy ending. No, it's, it's quite depressing read. It was quite frightening, I thought. It hit a lot of very primal registers. Yeah. Mostly just fear and horniness. Yeah. <laughs> Casting. Okay. Prepare I... to be disappointed, apparently. No, this is, this is a first on this show. <gasps> Please brace yourself in the likely event that you hate change. I will not be doing an adaptation of this film because it has already been adapted into a masterpiece, which is Terry Gilliam's Brazil from 1985, and there is no way to improve upon it, and therefore no point in updating it or trying. No, that really is disappointing. Well, see, the thing is, though, Daniel, I also wanted to give you the sort of Winston experience. I wanted to immerse you in a world of disappointment, so... Okay, well... Don't worry, way ahead of yourself. <laughs> okay. Okay, so now our new segment, which is bad Goodreads reviews. I picked ones that are not only bad, but really unhelpful. So there are quite a few this time, uh, because boy, uh, 1984 was just a treasure trove for people who really hated this book and didn't have much useful criticism about it. I lived through 1984 and it was nothing like this. Skip. One star. Couldn't stomach any more filth once Winston met Julia, and this dystopian novel turned into nothing more than a disturbing extramarital affair. Sorry, Orwell, you lost me. One star. That's pretty crazy. That's, yes, I'm... It's not even really... I wouldn't call it an extramarital affair if they're, like, been separated from for... For 11 years, years, yeah. And then there are three very quick reviews. Ew. One star. Nah. 
one star, and ass one star. <laughs> I just thought you're getting really good at the uh, the new speak yes, language. Yeah, uh, some analysis, please. Yes. So, what's this about your basic bitch theory? <laughs> well, this is this is something we actually haven't really talked about at all during the um, recap itself, but. There's a lot of confusion in this book or nostalgia for religion. Mm. Um, he's, he's always trying to remember this little poem. Oranges and lemons say the bells of St. Clemens, and he's desperate to try to find people who know the rest of the verse. And he's like, kind of obsessed with churches, like the ruins of churches and things. But I was thinking about the ending of the book. Is Winston in hell? Like, there, because there's this undercurrent of religion in the whole thing, and the party says the whole time that they actually kill people in the Ministry of Love after they've reconverted them. Hmm. And then it's only O'Brien sort of saying, like, oh, no, no, we just actually released them. Is it, like, a metaphorical Winston is dead? Or is this a literal, they killed him, and this is his afterlife for betraying Julia? Um, I mean, what's the difference, I suppose, that the society of... Airstrip One is itself kind of religious, isn't it? With all like the two minutes hate and everything. Like patriotism has a sort yeah. of religious content to it or character to it. Well, that's that's why I kept thinking Winston was a little bit of a himbo because he doesn't seem to understand that religion. For all that he's looking at it as this sort of like nostalgic, comforting thing. You know, it's a simpler time. It's a you know, it's mixed up with this children's rhyme. There's sort of an innocence about it. He doesn't really seem to be aware that it's you know at least once upon a time, if not always. A massively exploitative institution of control and wealth and power with constantly changing ideologies or perspectives based on what's most expedient at the time. I mean, it's not a huge leap to say God is big brother, like you've just swapped out one for the other. But Winston can't see it. That's like, kind of the point, though, isn't it? It's like what I was saying before about all that stuff that even his acts of sub subversion share a form of the kind of methods of control of the party. Mm. But in the same way that many of the party's structures seem to be derived from pre-existing forms of control. Mm. At least that's what O'Brien says, that all we've done is honed a better way of controlling other people and that there's no sort of way out of history. Well, but that's what I was wondering, especially with the old man in the pub and all the, these ideas of records being rewritten, you know, and, and uh, is, is Orwell saying that all forms of nostalgia are wrong and mediated and stupid and we're, we're only seeing the aesthetic, we're not actually seeing the power structures there? What's going on with the ulcer on his ankle? What's that about? He's always itching it. I suppose it's just disgusting, isn't it? Well? No, no offense to the ulcerated listeners out there, but the way they talk about yeah, it, kind of, I know the, the preoccupation with it. You know that whole like the flesh is weak, but the party isn't. So O'Brien says that, doesn't he? It's almost that kind of like party members are just kind of like the meat puppets for mm. the party structure, and they they are expendable, whereas party structure is the thing that will live forever. And it's kind of saying that, isn't yeah. it? Class. I was really preoccupied with the whole class thing. Um, what? You? Yeah. Why? The weirdest thing was the idea of like middle class identity and how the middle classes are a sort of dangerous group. And it, I didn't know if like Orwell was parodying that or if he really was like fetishizing the middle classes. 1984 suggests that the proles are almost like a different species. And both the party and Winston adhere to that. It seems like a parody of middle class values, but also it seems to really reinforce middle class values. But also, there is this sense that like the middle classes are the key to the revolution, and like we, you know, we oh, they first came from our grammar schools. You know, that's that's <laughs> it feels there's it, a kind of middle class paranoia to this as well as a middle class pastiche. And I yeah. really felt that was very strange, and I did not expect that. Well, I mean, we've been saying this whole time that Orwell is really slippery. It's so hard to pin down what this text is doing. And, you know, that in itself is interesting. Mm. That's an interesting essay. I mean, you can say that Orwell is ambiguous. You can't be, but you can say he has ambiguous yeah. terms, and that in itself is really interesting. In fact, maybe that's my uh, piece of advice for today, that authors sometimes don't always have a cut-and-dried message or no. handling of things. Sometimes they can go back and forth. So that's fine. In your essay, just say really clearly, so-and-so has an ambiguous stance on X shown through Y. Yeah. So yeah, as long as you are clear that they are not. It feels like a mistake of dialectics as well. It feels like Orwell sat the in too many... The D min word. The, yeah, the, D, the big D word. It feels like he sat the big D energy uh, <laughs> that controls all human history. But it feels like he sat maybe in one too many meetings of the Communist Party and had to hear people saying, you're not thinking dialectically. First of all, I'm sorry. I did not know that you even knew the phrase big D energy. And secondly, 2018 called and wants 
its lingo you back. In 1806, the year the phenomenology of spirit came out. That's when the big D energy was released into the world. Um, oh my god, I am watching a man unravel before me. Is it worth briefing? No, probably not. Let's end. Unless you've got more to say. Graceful note. No, just, uh, wow, you, you're a pro, Daniel. Thank you. Everybody, didn't Daniel do such a good job wrapping that up? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've already had our advice. Sorry, you got it earlier. You can deal. So, we'll just skip right to clue to the next episode. It's Rumpelstiltskin. The story is just straight up Rumpelstiltskin. And it's uh, the last in the series and our year... The year... What do you call it? Anniversary. Uh, yeah, it's, it's our... It's... <laughs> It's our one-year anniversary. Weirdly enough, our, our next episode will be scheduled to release exactly one year to the day that our first episode was released. It's just a total fluke of the calendar. Yeah, so because this is our last episode of the season before we break for the summer, you should tune in to hear updates, including some fun things that we have scheduled during our hiatus. So we do have plans while we're on break. The listeners won't be involved. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Daniel and I are going to a water park. White water rafting, I was going to say, but yeah, water park's funnier. <laughs> the idea of you at a water park. Okay, so please write into our email uh, or tweet us if you have any book suggestions that you would like us to cover or just, you know, compliments, comments. Just want to shoot the shit, chew the fat, chew yeah. the shit, shoot the fat. Any and all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> you get energy now yeah, I was just thinking that now I was like, yeah that was a good joke Daniel. thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms.com underscore podcast on Twitter and do not I'm going to remind you do not forget to rate, review and subscribe do not forget thank you